Whenever you can, act as a liberator. Freedom, dignity, and wealth, these three together constitute the greatest happiness of humanity. If you bequeath all three to your people, their love for you will never die. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm joined by Terry Fakes, whose speaking lines attributed to Cyrus the Great, the greatest king of Persia, the first emperor of the Persian Empire, recorded in Xenophon, who's a Greek chronicler. And these words really describe a difference in the ancient empires, a dramatic shift in the story that we've been telling, starting with the Assyrians, coming down through the Babylonians, and if you were listening last time, we left our story with the, with the Babylonians who have become ascendant in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, conquered Assyria, conquered much of the known world, built this fantastic capital and culture, and they've built a city that actually is preserved in the Bible as the city against God all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. But like so many of these empires, Babylon's story is very short in the big scheme of things. You know, we talked at the end of the last episode that they went from the empire ruling over most of the known world to conquered in, as the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19, an hour. So the breach of the wall of Babylon happens while people are having a party and a festival in the palace. And before they know it, the city has been conquered. And these gathering armies to the east are a coalition of forces who will come to be known as the Medo-Persian Empire. And this group of conquering armies is led by what many people think is the greatest conqueror before Alexander the Great, and his name is Cyrus. Cyrus the Great uh, may not be the most uh, famous to biblical scholars. I mean, he's, he's not mentioned as much as some of the other kings, but he is the one that really put Persia on the map. And as you alluded to, Persia is, think of it as modern-day Iran. The Persian people are Iranian, to use a modern term. And they and a group of people who lived a little east of them, called the Medes, were occupying this area to the east of Babylon. And at that time, the Median king, the king of the Medes named Astyages, was the more powerful. And so Cyrus the Great's father, was one of his kings that owed allegiance to him. And they teamed up to fight against the Babylonian Empire. In fact, Cyrus's dad married one of the daughters of Astyages. And so his father was Persian. His mother was one of the royalty of the Medes. And as he was growing up, his mother would remind him that he was the legitimate heir to both the Persian and the Median Empire. And sure enough, when he succeeded his father, he united the Medes and the Persians together into a very, very powerful empire that we see overthrowing Babylon in 539 BC. Anybody that's listened to the first two episodes in our empire series will remember that these Medes have actually been a disturbing force in the region for a long time. The Medes grouped together with Babylon, actually, to overthrow the Uh Assyrian Empire. And so this... These Medes that are from the Zagros Mountains, northeast of where Babylon is, very mysterious group of people, great at breeding horses, uh, sweep into the scene right when it's about time to change empires. And we would probably say that when they overthrew Assyria, they didn't ascend as much to rulership over the area as they did throw off any kind of 
um, tribute or any kind of authority that the Assyrians had. But this time, the Medes are going to play a very different role. And it's because, as you mentioned, Cyrus is got a foot in two camps. He is right. Persian. He is Median. And that fusion is going to set Cyrus up to actually conquer in a way that was different when the Medes rose to prominence 150 years earlier. You know, and what uh, makes him different, Cole, is once he conquers, because we've, we've kind of heard this story, right? You get the Assyrians come along, the Babylonians conquer them and pretty much take their territory. But Cyrus the Great didn't stop with that. Cyrus the Great moved eastward and westward. And when I say westward, he's moving all the way into the area where some of the Greeks had colonized on the continent. In fact, there's a great story about King Croesus of Lydia. He's a Greek, and he's uh, got a little kingdom, if you will. And Cyrus goes all the way west to near his kingdom. And so King Croesus, who many people think is the uh, the one behind the legend of King Midas. Croesus was so rich, they had so much gold in his kingdom that they actually had gold coins, was their normal coinage. They were extremely rich. And Croesus consulted the oracle at Delphi. And as usual, the oracle came back and said to him, in, in answer to his question, should I attack Cyrus and expand my kingdom? And the oracle said, if you attack a great kingdom will fall. And so he took that to mean that Cyrus's kingdom would fall. And so he attacked and his own kingdom fell. And so Cyrus expanded uh, his kingdom to the east and to the west. And I think, Cole, that's one of the things that makes Persians different is they end up with an empire that's geographically bigger than I think anything the world had seen at that time. You got to be careful with those oracles, as is a common feature of these stories that Herodotus tells. Cyrus is a fascinating figure in history because he is a different kind of ruler than his predecessors. He is a conqueror of the like of Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar. He is similar to Napoleon in certain ways, Genghis Khan. I mean, this whole, whole long line of conquerors, the first one that's really similar is Cyrus. And he's different in the way that he conquers territory. He's also different in the way that he manages territory. And if you've right. heard of Cyrus, you probably know about him because of that reason. Yeah, that's true. You know, he had two gifts other than obviously being a good military commander. He was a good administrator because a lot of empires don't last simply because you can't govern them. They get too big to govern. But he's the one who first came up with the idea of of a satrap. And a satrap is, we might think of it as like states or, you know, just regional with rulers over them. And he set up these satrapies around his kingdom and he put governors, if you will, in charge of them. And he distributed the rule a little bit. So he was, he was good at that. But, you know, probably what's most important to us as uh, Christians is the role that he played in the story of the Jewish people. And I know that sounds a little awkward, like we're talking about big empires clashing. And here's this guy, Cyrus, who's a little different kind of king. But one of the ways he was different, Cole, is unlike the Assyrians, who would deport their people and make you worship their gods, and the Babylonians, 
Remember the story of Daniel. We're going to teach you to worship our gods and be like us. Cyrus was more religiously tolerant, and that allowed him to play a role, and you and I might say, God had determined that he would be that way to play a role in the story of Jewish people. Well, as early as Isaiah chapter 13, you get a prediction that the Medes and the Persians are going to overthrow Babylon. And so in the same part of Isaiah where you have uh, the oracle concerning Sargon and Sennacherib and talking about the Assyrians, you also get this prediction that Babylon is going to fall to these Medes. But it isn't until Isaiah 44 that you actually get the name of the person who's going to do this. And this is one of those really astonishing biblical uh, facts, these biblical prophecies, is that in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, Isaiah names Cyrus as the person who is going to conquer. And he does something even crazier than that. Cyrus has the distinction in the Bible of being the only non-Jew to have the title Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures. That is true, and it's just amazing. I mean, if you think about Isaiah, and there are a lot of disputes as to when the book of Isaiah was written, but Isaiah the prophet, I want you to think of him as living around 700 BC. We're talking about Cyrus overcoming Babylon 160 years later in 539 BC. And so for the book of Isaiah to name Cyrus and for God to say, thus says the Lord to his anointed, or that's the word for Messiah, Cyrus. And you know, it goes on to say, Cole, that uh, God says, you don't know me, Cyrus, but I have set you up to conquer kingdoms. And I've done it for the sake of my people, Jacob, which I just think is a remarkable turn of history. It it really, in some ways, fulfills some of the prophecies that Daniel has made, is that the Babylonians will be overthrown, that Jeremiah, before him, has made that the Jews would be allowed to return. Cyrus is the mechanism that God uses for that to happen. Yeah, that that mechanism is known in the Bible as the Edict of Cyrus, and this right. is a, an amazing historical fact about the Bible. We have the Edict of Cyrus preserved three separate times in the Old Testament, and it's mm-hmm. given as a royal proclamation that the Jews are able to go back from Babylon to Jerusalem. They're able to go back. They're able to rebuild. In fact, Cyrus commissions them to rebuild the temple. And we we actually have some outside evidence that this was Cyrus's way with his conquered peoples. But there may be more to it here as well. I'll throw out two things that maybe influence this. Obviously, you have Daniel, who is in the royal court of Babylon, and later is in the royal court of the Persians. And there's a dispute about what king is he actually serving under. So in, mm-hmm. in Daniel chapter 5, we see that it's King Darius, but it's not Darius the Great, most likely, because of the way the timing works out, the age when he takes the throne doesn't fit. But it some people have said maybe that's Cyrus himself. That also seems a little bit far-fetched, but it could be a royal governor of that area in the transition mm-hmm. between Babylon and Persia. So there may have been some influence that Daniel is exerting over letting the people go back. Josephus, who's obviously writing a long time later, and you have to take a little bit with a grain of salt, believes that Daniel or somebody else convinced Cyrus to read the prophecy of Isaiah. And after he Uh, reads this prophecy, he realizes, I've got to let these people go back. 
I've got to commission them to rebuild their temple. And so if you think about the edict of Cyrus is happening contemporaneous with the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, a little bit later on, is coming back to Jerusalem. Uh, Zerubbabel is going to rebuild the temple. They're going to rebuild the wall. All of this is happening because Cyrus, when he takes over, says, you guys can worship your gods. You can go back to Jerusalem. You can rebuild your temple. In fact, you see in, in Nehemiah later on, the temple is rebuilt through the financing of the Persian right. Empire, which is another astonishing historical thing uh, to read in the Bible. Yeah, I think it is a historical fact that Cyrus's way of ruling was to be generous and allow people to rebuild their temples and even help them to. And he, he thought that he would get their loyalty. But as you read the edict in Ezra, it's not just a generic edict. This is uh, Cyrus saying, according to Ezra chapter 1, that they were given permission to rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and that he would help fund that. And he did. And so you get the return of Zerubbabel and the first group in 538 B.C., and they go to Jerusalem and they begin work on the temple and they've got financing to do it. Now, they don't have a wall around Jerusalem, but they've got at least the order that the Persians bring and they've got the mandate of the king. Well, when Cyrus dies, his son Cambyses comes in and he's not as favorable to the Jewish people. And it looks like that funding was cut off. And so Cambyses is between 530 and 522. And that's interesting, Cole, because we also know from the prophets at that era in the Bible, the minor prophets, that it looked like the people in Jerusalem had stopped working on the temple. And it appears that Cambyses, after Cyrus the Great, uh, for whatever reasons, it wasn't that he was persecuting the Jews, but it may have been financial trouble. We don't know, but that the funds dried up a little bit. And so that seems to be coincident with the people stopping work on the temple. And it's not until Cambyses' son, Darius the Great, who uh, reigns from 522 to 486, he reinstates the funding. And it's during the reign of Darius the Great that the temple actually gets finished in 516 BC. It's just interesting as you read the Minor Prophets to see how the people begin to build, then they stop. Then Haggai comes along and says, you, you need to devote uh, your energies to the house of the Lord, and that God enables that by opening up the spigot for the funds again from Darius the Great. Yeah, you'll remember the story in Haggai where God comes to the people and he says, look, you guys are building wood-paneled housing and these nice, wonderful places for you to live, but you've stopped building the place for me to live. And one of the things we can kind of read in from that is they were all excited about building the temple while it was being financed by somebody else. But when it yes. fell to them to finance building the temple, they decided, no, we're going to use this money to build our own houses. And so the Lord rebukes them for that, and they restart the building. And that coincides with Darius coming to the throne, uh, which Darius has a, a whole interesting background, not in the royal line, although his... The propaganda would lead you to believe that he was. I mean, he he claims that he was a distant cousin of Cambyses and shares some blood of Cyrus the Great, but right. we don't know if that's actually true or not. What happens is he is a usurper. He organizes a group of people to kill 
the heirs of Cyrus, and then he marries one of Cyrus's daughters and claims the throne for himself. Now, Cyrus was a great administrator. Darius was next level. This is when yes. the Persian Empire really got things organized. Darius was a boardroom man. He was all mm -hmm. about finances, laws. He was all about best practices and standard procedures. And uh, in one of the chapters in a great book on the Persians uh, by uh, Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, he says, when the world was run by bureaucrats, the uh, Persian Empire is extremely detailed under Darius, and uh, he orders the conquered territories, he orders the capital, he moves the capital over to Susa, he really takes hold of this empire, um, such that I think in, in Tom Holland's book, Persian Fire, he says, for once you have somebody whose skills actually rise to the level of their ambition. And that was certainly true for Darius. Now, I will say, Darius is most famous, not from the Bible, Darius is most famous from the movie 300, if you remember seeing that. And uh, obviously, he's going to go on and fight the Greeks and his son and all of that. But he is most well known for things outside of the Bible. But there's some very interesting things in the Bible about Darius. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I agree with you about his organizational ability. You know, he standardized the currency. Think about this. You, you've you got an empire that's so big, it could literally collapse overnight. Think the former Soviet Union. Uh, economic systems collapse. Uh, infrastructure collapses. Supply chains collapse. I mean, that's what they're dealing with. And he really is a mastermind. He standardized the currency, which would allow for trade and you know, financial transactions across the empire. He built roads. He was kind of the precursor of what we think of as the Romans, Cole. You know, how the Romans sort of paved the whole world, and they had obviously an even bigger empire. But the organizational skills to run that are amazing. Well, Darius, you're right, was the guy at the time to do that. So from the biblical point of view, he's the guy that reauthorized the uh, money for the temple back in Ezra chapter 5 and 6, record that uh, Darius is told that uh, his uh, grandfather Cyrus had pledged to give money to all these temples, and he has a search done of the records. And when they find it, he says, sure enough. And so then he issues an edict so that the money comes and the people can finish it. Haggai, of course, is prophesying during this time as well. But he uh, is known, he probably starts a chain of events that you mentioned in that I told you that the empire of Cyrus went so far west that it started touching into the Greek colonies. And in 490 BC, Darius actually tries to invade the Greeks. He's trying to expand it even more, but he's defeated at the Battle of Marathon. You may remember that story. That's where we get our you know, our uh, distance of the marathon is a messenger ran, theoretically, 26.2 miles to say we won and then died, uh, which is what most people do after they run a marathon is collapse. But in all seriousness, he invaded, but it was unsuccessful. And so he was rebuffed. And then his son Xerxes, 10 years later, invades again to avenge his father's defeat 
and that's probably uh, the most famous to us outside the Bible would be the great King Xerxes and his battle with the Greeks. Yeah, so Xerxes is coming on a revenge mission back to conquer the Greeks after they defeated his father in battle. Uh, most famously, this is the Second Persian War. There's a league of Greeks who band together under the leadership of Leonidas, the king of Sparta, and they go to this narrow pass. They stand their ground. The 300 Spartans and several others uh, are there, and they're betrayed by a Greek, and they're enveloped. But they decide that night, they decide to stay and fight to the death. And so they hold off the Persian army, probably in a way that enabled the later victory against the Persians because it bought the Greeks time to get the Navy ready, to get people organized, and Leonidas and his 300 Spartans die at the Battle of Thermopylae against the army of, of Xerxes. But that victory was short-lived for Xerxes. He is not quite the warrior king that uh, Cyrus was, and he's not right. quite as successful uh, at uh, bringing his ambition into reality as his father was. However, the empire is amazingly powerful at the time of Xerxes. I mean, he's able right. to gather armies that have never been seen, the size that's never been seen on the earth before. And there's another interesting biblical tie-in in the reign of Xerxes. Exactly. Uh, while he's doing all these things in the history books, in the Bible, he's marrying a girl named Esther. And so you have in his kingdom some obviously political intrigue. And so those of you who read the book of Esther know that it really is a girl who ends up saving the Jewish people from persecution by one of Xerxes' top, uh, top cabinet members. And so he is the king of the book of Esther. And so I can imagine him coming back uh, from the battle with the Greeks and being depressed and, uh, you know, he gets, he's not happy with his queen. And, and you see a picture in that book, if you know the history of a king who's frustrated and uh, not at his best. And, but then God uses Esther to bring to his attention uh, what's going on with his advisors and how they are so treacherously dealing with these people. And Xerxes becomes the unwitting savior, just like Cyrus was, of the Jewish people. It's interesting to me, Cole, how God uses these Persian kings through no willful effort of their own in his plan to preserve his people. It's an amazing theme that, are, that goes throughout all these Bible stories, that God is working a plan, whether these kings know it or not, and that just like Daniel prophesied to King Nebuchadnezzar, God is the one who sets up kings and tears down kingdoms. And he's proving that over and over again for the good of his people. Now, Xerxes doesn't suffer as good a fate as the first two kings uh, of Persia. He he's assassinated die. by the commander of his bodyguard, a guy named Artabanus. And his heir, Darius, is also assassinated. And if you look at the king list of Persia, what you'll realize is these guys really liked two names, Darius and Xerxes. And then you get Artaxerxes, which is a similar way to say Xerxes. And you uh -huh. get alternating Xerxes the first, Darius the second, Xerxes the third, all the way down. You know, So you get all right. these... There's going to be another Darius after this, actually. But at this point, Xerxes and his son 
Darius, who was going to be his heir, are assassinated. And another son named Artaxerxes is going right. to take the throne. He consolidates power. He kills off Artabanus, and he avenges his father. And something, uh, another uh, kind of amazing biblical parallel happens here. This is when Ezra is sent back to Jerusalem. So you can read this in Ezra chapter 7. You remember Ezra is a scribe who is studying the law of God. He comes back to call the people to repentance in Jerusalem. He's not in the first group that goes there. He's in this kind of revival right. group that goes there to restart the work and to reignite the service of God and to help people come back from exile into the land that's promised uh, and into the town of Jerusalem. That's exactly right. You know, it's interesting. Think now how long this has been that we've seen this chain of kings, and most of them have been, uh, maybe the phrase is religiously tolerant. Actually, more than that, religiously supportive. So, you know, we saw the edict of Cyrus saying, you guys can go back and I'll help you build your temple. Saw the edict of Darius. All these are in the Bible. The edict of Darius that says, yes, just like my grandfather said, I'm going to resupply you and I'll turn on the money and go back and build your temple. And they do. Well, here's Artaxerxes, who does the same thing. In Ezra chapter 7, uh, it says this. He, he writes a copy of the letter. This is a letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest. But listen to how powerful these kings are. Artaxerxes, the king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace to you. I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel, their priests or Levites in my kingdom, may go to Jerusalem and have my protection. And it's just fascinating how many of these kings carried out such a benevolent uh, social program toward the Jewish people. So he does indeed send Ezra back. And Ezra's role, as you know, Cole, is not so much to rebuild the temple and not to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah is going to do that. He's going to rebuild the faith of the people. And the book of Ezra is the story of him going back and reading the law and turning the hearts of the people back to God. This story with Ezra and Nehemiah is the sunset of the Old Testament. This is the last set of events we have in our Old Testament. The prophets Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are prophesying during this time. The people are back, they're rebuilding. And as the sun sets on the Old Testament, still 400 years before the coming of Christ, we mm -hmm. see the people are back in Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. Ezra is working. They're recommitting themselves to the covenant. They're rebuilding the life that they had before. They're worshiping God. They're faithful. And they're serving, essentially, under the benevolent reign of the Persians. And Jerusalem is going to go through some turmoils and things between now and the time when Christ comes, which we'll talk about next week when we do the Greeks. But for all intents and purposes, the end of the Old Testament is a very peaceful time for the Jews. They've been given the money they need, the freedom they need. They have benevolent rulers over them who are allowing them to essentially rebuild their life before God in the promised land. And so the Old Testament comes full circle in some ways that the Exodus brings them out. They come into the land, their idolatry, their turning away from God takes them out, and God promises to bring them back. And so by the end of the Old Testament, God has been faithful to his word over and over and over again to the Jewish people. And there they are, back in the land, not all of them, but many of them back in the land. Nehemiah and his uh, successors are governors of Jerusalem. They've rebuilt right. the temple and the walls. 
and they're living as the people of God again, reinstating the sacrifices, and uh, the Persian Empire is going to go the way of the other empires, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. And that in and of itself is a very fascinating story, but it starts way back early in the Persian time period. As we talked about, their major rivals are the Greeks. They've overextended themselves too far to the West. The Greeks have right. repulsed them. They have defeated them in battle at the uh, different battles of Thermopylae where they stop them. And then you get the battle of Plataea where they defeat them on land. The Persians are essentially between a rock and a hard place. They can't expand anymore. Their armies have been defeated by the Greeks. Right. And about 60 years after the time the Old Testament closes, there's a new conqueror who is coming on the scene, who's going to actually take all the land that the Persians occupy and continue to expand even beyond where they thought that they could go to the east. And that will be, of course, Alexander the Great, the great Greek conqueror. But the lessons before we get to the end of the Persian Empire are so entwined with this sunset of the Old Testament that right. the unique qualities of the Persian Empire, guided by God, even though they don't realize it, are what fulfills the promises of God that were made hundreds of years before this. Exactly. And, you know, there's a sense in which uh, I, I think that the one of the fun we'll talk about this more in our next episode, but the fundamental clash between the Greeks and the Persians was certainly military, of course, and it was certainly cultural, ethnic, of course. But really, the Greeks cast this because we know more about this from the Greeks because they won. And but their mindset was this was a clash of two civilizational models. One was the Persian model you know, king of kings, lord of lords, you know, the all-powerful king, even though he was a benevolent king by the standards of empire. And the Greeks were, you know, democracy, rule of the people, or at least some of the people. And they really saw this as we don't want to be a slave to a king. We want to do our own thing. We want to have the people rule. And so perhaps in our next episode, we'll talk a little bit about this is a clash of civilizational models. But to stay with the Persians for a minute, I really do think that uh, I want to see what you think about this. I may be reaching too far. But if I think about the Assyrian kings, they were brutal. They were self-serving. They humiliated their opponents. I think the same thing for the Babylonian kings. If you remember Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he basically loses his mind. God punishes him for literally saying, I'm so awesome, I'm God. You know, we talked about that incident in Nebuchadnezzar's life. But when Cyrus comes along, he's he's called the anointed one of God, the Messiah of God. And I don't mean by that that he serves God, but he does serve God's purpose. But as empires go, he was more of a Christ figure, if you will, more of a benevolent ruler for his people uh, than anybody that had come before him. And it seems to me that God, Cyrus, is a little bit of a model of the benevolent dictator. And that's when this came to pass. Uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that uh, Cyrus and the Persians had the character that they did because that's the only way they could have accomplished what they accomplished. That's certainly been Cyrus's reputation down through the ages. Cyrus is buried in a big, ornate tomb. Alexander visits 
the tomb of Cyrus and honors it. He It had been plundered by this time, and so he commissions that it be renovated. And the inscription there is Cyrus, the great, the king of kings, conquered you know the known worlds. Don't begrudge me my monument. And Alexander pays respect to him, even as he's going to yeah. conquer his kingdom. Later, during the Muslim conquest, this is in the 7th century AD, as the Muslim armies come through, the people that are there living around Cyrus's tomb, they ask him, whose tomb is this? And because they don't want them to destroy it, they say that it's Solomon's mother's tomb, uh, which how you would how you would think that that's where Solomon's mother's tomb was, was is yeah. kind of questionable. But people forgot for a long time because of that who was actually buried there. Right. And it's 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 not been that long since people rediscovered that this is the tomb of Cyrus and it's been redecorated and, and it's now a place of honor in modern day Iran. But Cyrus has taken on this role as kind of the founder of Iran, of modern Iran. And so, of right. course, he's not a Muslim, which is right. something that they kind of a wrinkle that you have to figure out. But he is known as being this enlightened, benevolent ruler, and his character as a ruler and the qualities that he that he ruled with have come to be some of the things in retrospect that define modern kingdoms. There's a right. element of his religious tolerance, the way that they governed, all of this, of course, not not reflected in the current government of Iran. Right. But among the idea that the, the Iranians are Persian people, they look back to Cyrus as the founder of their people group. And when they do that, it's not because of his conquering. It's because of this. It's because of his benevolence. It's because of the way that he treated the people that were under him and his almost universally positive reception throughout history. Even though he was a very brutal conquering king, Right. He was in stark contrast to the kings of the time, and that's probably the thing that's most remembered about him now. You know, one of the things I think is really fascinating, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the podcast before, but whereas modern-day Iran is Islamic, I want to go back to their time, because Cyrus uh, probably was what we would call a Zoroastrian, but Darius most certainly was. And you may be asking, what is a Zoroastrian? It is a peculiarly Iranian religion. Uh, its founder was a herdsman called Zarathustra, hence the Nietzsche, uh, thus spake Zarathustra. But it comes to us through the Greek language as Zoroaster. And Zoroaster believed that there was one primary god named Ahura Mazda. He was the unifying god. And what he preached was right thinking, right actions, justice, and peace. Now, I know that sounds really strange because that's not really what most of the gods of empires preach. They preach dominance. They preached superiority. So here comes this herdsman, and he begins pre to preach this doctrine of right living and right action and justice, and it sweeps the Persian people, if you will, they become Zoroastrian and they worship Ahura Mazda. And Darius is probably best known for this. He felt like that Ahura Mazda, the great god, had chosen him and made him king for the purpose of bringing peace and order to the world. And you talked about how he honestly did a great job of that. He basically organized this empire. And for all the fact that all of these emperors killed a lot of people, 
relatively speaking, I would say that religion really influenced how he treated his people and his vision of I'm here to steward this kingdom as opposed to I'm, you know, like Nebuchadnezzar or the Assyrian kings. I'm the God king and everybody here is here to serve me. And I just think that religion of Zoroastrianism had to have had an effect on these Persian kings and the way they saw the people that they conquered. It's a development in the history of religion in the world that their religion is unlike the religion of the Babylonians. It's unlike right. the religion of the Assyrians. And this is reflected in their leadership. And of course, Zoroastrianism has a long history. There are still in some ways, you know, kind of uh, Muslim versions of Zoroastrianism around. Uh -huh. And, it, and it, it's a strange religion to us, but it was also a strange religion then. And yep. one of the things that you see in the writings of Darius is he has been charged by uh, the gods to bring the truth against mm -hmm. the lie. So he couches everything he's doing in the truth. He is bringing the truth. And the Persian culture was built on telling the truth. He is stamping out not just idolatry or false worship, but the lie about the way the world is. These religious categories are very different than anything that's been seen up until this point. And I do think that there's a, there's an influential role that this Zoroastrian religion plays in the lives of, of Cyrus and Darius and their successors. And it's one of the reasons they rule differently. There's a toleration for other religions because those other religions can be part of the truth, the quote-unquote truth that they are crusading for. Uh, but the other thing is they just were very gifted in administration. And mm -hmm. one of the ways that, you, that they administrated so well is they harnessed the power of people groups to essentially do their work for them. And so instead right. of just exacting tribute and having kind of a top-down strategy to make sure nobody rebelled, they essentially bribed the people that they had conquered by letting them return to their own places and worship their own gods provided they didn't cause any problems and it turned right. out to be actually a very it turned out to be a very successful strategy until they were conquered by another people group uh in the, at the end of their empire you know one other thought leaving the religion for just a minute because it to me that's one of the unique things about the persian empire is their religion was different uh, another unique thing is that caused them to rule differently and God used that kingdom and that moment of time, if you will, as the mechanism to fulfill his promises. But there's one other way that I think they're very different. It seems to me, Cole, that the Persian Empire is the last Eastern Empire. And what I mean mm -hmm. by that is the divide between the East and the West, if you will. I mean, today we think of Western nations, that's Europe, etc. And uh, but Persia and the Medes, they're definitely in Asia, in the continent of Asia. They're Eastern. And if you think about the pictures you've seen of the Persians and their turbans and things like that, we think of them as, okay, that's ethnically Eastern. But from the time of the Greeks and the Romans on, we see the rise of what we think of as the Western empires. And I wonder if this is not also a hinge in history of a movement of power from the East and the ideas of the East to what we think of as the, the Western way of thinking that comes from the Greco-Roman tradition. So that's a really great point because 
sure enough, at the same time that the Persian Empire is reaching its height and beginning to wind down, in the West, in Greece, especially among these various city-states, there is a golden age that's getting ready to blossom. And everything that we think of as Western heritage, art and culture and philosophy, democracy, the way that citizenship is conceived of is all taking root just west of the Persian Empire in Greece at this time. And what we'll see is the Greeks do defeat the Persians in uh, terms of their military capabilities. They defeat them at sea, especially, but they overwhelmingly defeat the Persians in terms of their culture. And Greek culture, once it begins to flower, it will be the culture of the West up until today. We owe right. a lot of our, our conception of West, Western civilization to the Greeks and to the Romans. And so we'll leave our story here for the time being with a rising empire in the West that is a disparate group of city-states, autonomous and democratic and different than anything going on in the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire is like the others in that it reaches a peak and it's not long, a little bit longer than the Babylonians and the Assyrians right. before things are going to fundamentally change again. And the biblical tie-in is that the Old Testament ends under Persian rule, and the New Testament begins under Roman rule. And in the middle, there is one of the greatest cultures the world has ever seen, the Greeks. And understanding the Greeks is the way that we can understand how the New Testament begins, but it's also the way that we can understand what happens in between the Old and New Testaments. And so in our, episode, our next episode, we'll cover the Greeks We'll cover what happens in Jerusalem in between Malachi and Matthew. We'll talk about how the world changes fundamentally to be ready for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem under the Roman Empire. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review. Email us. Tell us what you like about it. Tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.